It's October 2nd, 1902, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Once upon a time, there were three little retrospectors, and their names were Arian, <laughs> Rebecca, and Ollie. Sorry, guys, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I am, of course, referencing the opening lines of Beatrix Potter's The Tale of Peter Rabbit, published today in history back in 1902. And it went on extraordinarily to sell over 40 million copies worldwide, but it was an instant sensation. It wasn't one of these things that was a slow build. The publishers couldn't keep up with how many reprints were required. The first Peter Rabbit story was actually just written as this letter to a little boy called Noel Moore, who was the five-year-old son of Potter's former governess. And he was unwell, and Potter had written him this picture and story letter to help him pass the time and to cheer him up. And in it, she had done a few sketches illustrating the story. And then her friends were like, that's really good. You should publish that. And so she was like, yeah, okay, I'll send it off to some publishers. And they all went like, nah, <laughs> don't think so. Until <laughs> so finally, someone did. She hadn't been totally rejected by the publishers. What had happened was that some of them were sort of semi-interested, but they all had their own demands. And she had a really strong vision for how she wanted this book to turn out. Different editors, for instance, wanted the book to be shorter or they wanted it to be longer. You know, They felt like it should either be a full-length book or it should be a very short story. And Peter Rabbit sort of sat in between. And also there was a bit of a debate around the illustrations because Beatrix Potter, we'll get into her artistic background, but she believed that they should be in black and white. And a lot of the publishing houses wanted them in colour. But her point was that the colours in the story, which is basically brown rabbit fur and green leaves and grass weren't going to make the most compelling subject for a colourful illustration. And it wasn't just an aesthetic choice. It was that she knew that her target market wanted to buy the book themselves. It's similar to Ladybird books, mm. which we've covered before. I mean, obviously, they were full colour, which was the attraction then a few decades later, but similar in the sense of an illustration on every page. She knew that little kids would want an illustration on every page. She knew that if you did colour illustrations, that meant the book would be more expensive. So that was one of the reasons as well that she wanted it in black and white not because necessarily it was better but because she knew her target market quote little rabbits cannot afford to spend six shillings on one book and she also wanted it as a small format book she had in mind this idea that you could do it so that little hands could hold it and they could have this book for themselves so she had lots of kind of surprisingly developed ideas considering this began its life as this letter to a pal's son. Yeah, so what she decided to do in the end was publish a limited run privately, kind of how people publish their e-books on Amazon these days. Imagine making something and publishing it yourself. <laughs> how ridiculous. <laughs> how ridiculous, without, without funding from a wide circle of fans um, she she decided to privately publish 250 copies to distribute to her family and friends and also ad admirers I mean Arthur Conan Doyle was one of the people who bought the one of the 250 copies for his own children so I'm not sure whether they were family friends or whether word was getting around that this was you know a very charming book one of the family friends was this guy called Canon Hardwick Drummond Rawnsley, a vicar, as I suggest. <laughs> Canon was not his actual name. I'm suddenly at a murder mystery weekend. I know the character. <laughs> yeah. I've got the monocle. I'm wearing tweed. <laughs> well, so what he did was he not only got access to the tale of Peter Rabbit, he turned it into slightly 
verse he sort of made a poetical version of it and he submitted it for publication in 1901 to a company called frederick warn and co they were not wild about the poetry but they liked the story and they liked the pictures so they asked to see potter's original manuscript and then they offered her a deal to publish it themselves <laughs> so this this has lots of promise if only you took out every single thing that has been added by this other doofus <laughs> <laughs> but because of it then being picked up by warn a mainstream publisher and published on this day, the original private editions of the book that Potter published herself are really valuable now, mm. particularly because, as you alluded to, Arian, they were all handled by kids. Yeah. So there are no pristine examples. They all have significant wear and tear. So it's not a question of like, oh, a rarely perfectly preserved example of an early Potter edition. Like, no, they're all completely <laughs> falling apart. It's a question of how much they're falling apart. So like almost any edition of this is really valuable. And the way to tell if you have uh, a first print of this edition that was published in 1902 or the private editions, even more valuable, from, from 1901, is if it says on page 51, shed big tears. Because the only Ooh. editorial change that Potter made between 1902 and 1903, when it was a massive success and they were printing tens of thousands of them, was that she changed a sentence where Peter wept big tears to Peter shed big tears. Mm. And so, like, if you look on Christie's <laughs> and Sotheby's and stuff when they're auctioning it, they'll say it's like a, a shed big tears edition. <laughs> Can you imagine her being uh, like, oh, this has been bugging me all year. Can't wait to change this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that really shows how across the details she was and also how she'd obviously tested this out with real children. Like, you know, she'd been reading it to kids, seeing their reaction, and obviously shed big tears was confusing. Wet big tears isn't. So going back a step to her childhood and the reason that she had this artistic talent that she could just then leverage into this book. So she was born Helen Beatrix Potter in 1866, and she spent her formative years under the care of this governess whose child she ultimately wrote this uh, letter that became a book too. Uh, and largely she was left to her own imagination on the third floor of her parents' very wealthy uh, family home in the Bolton Gardens area of London, very posh part of town. And she apparently never went outside very much until a family vacation to Perthshire in Scotland, uh, where they went for a summer getaway. And she was really, really interested in all of the animals and insects and the plant life, and even took several animals home with her, including two rabbits, one of whom she named Peter and the other Benjamin Bouncer. And so that's where her love of animals and nature began. And she then started to perfect this illustrative style of drawing her pets. And that's why she started corresponding with children, presumably. I mean, can you imagine being one of her grown-up friends being like, oh, Beatrice has sent me a picture of her rabbit again. Yeah, great. Do you know what I mean? Like, you'd feel compelled to respond in kind, wouldn't you? It's like, I can't draw a cat. I don't want to do now. I mean, I think for her it was a way to channel the passion and the knowledge that she had for botany, which was a very Victorian craze. It was something that it was very fashionable to be into, but she was especially into it. And she did actually try to have an impact on the academic side. She was incredibly knowledgeable about flora and fauna. She specialised in fungal and she made really detailed artistic reproductions of different species etc but whenever she submitted research it tended to be overlooked or rejected due to obviously due to the fact that she was a woman at the time she wasn't taken seriously it wasn't because she'd alliteratively named all of the things she was writing about <laughs> yeah. let me take you inside well, timmy tree <laughs> and it's interesting and kind of bittersweet that ultimately where she found fame was channeling all of that knowledge she had into writing books for children which was seen as one of the relatively few things that a woman could respectably do for money at the time 
Yeah, she also took, presumably this was a wild rabbit at the point at which she trapped it in <laughs> Perthshire and then brought it back with her. She also taught it to play the tambourine and ring bells. <laughs> I think that's a generous and, and, interpretation of play the tambourine would be necessary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Benjamin Bouncer, her other rabbit, apparently enjoyed buttered toast and went for walks on a lead. And he was the inspiration for Benjamin Bunny in her stories. And she also had a hedgehog called Mrs. Tiggly Winkle. And that that became a beloved character in her stories as well. Tiggy Winkle. It's Tiggy Winkle, Aaron. Oh, sorry. It's Tiggy Winkle, Aaron. Thank How you. embarrassing. How could you? I can't How believe you? you added the Y. How infantilizing. <laughs> an iconic character from children's literature. It's really part of this very, I think, British tradition of extremely low stakes children's literature in which the drama is very, very small scale. In this case, it's literally small scale. You know, there's descriptions of tiny bowls of bread and milk and spoonfuls of chamomile tea it's really it's very much a bromide that's designed to placate children rather than more say american style which is designed to stimulate excitement because we want our children to shut up and go to sleep that's why (laughs) actually even the low level threat of like peter rabbit's dad was made into pie i mean that's Mm. that's That's pretty high level yeah that's pretty full on yeah that's about as bad as it gets i don't want anyone i know to be made into a pie um but like (laughs) the stakes are small because they're small creatures but actually the the themes are big themes it's real danger it's peril to him and i must say like reading it to my two-year-old relatively recently i was like oh this is like this is an adventure this is you know it's not it's not not scary it's a bit scary <laughs> but also it's 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 real danger for real rabbits i mean obviously real rabbits don't talk but the environment that they're in is something that kids can relate to, or at least English kids of the era, most of them who had access to books could relate to. You know, the garden, the potting shed, the watering can. It's not exotic, but if you were a rabbit in that environment, you would be running away from the farmer who was trying to kill you and turn you into pie. So it's, it's, it is relatable. But it's interesting that you talk about that kind of that laid-back thing, because nowadays, Arian, I'm sure you've watched the CBB's version of Peter Rabbit, as I have many hundreds yes. of times as well. <laughs> it starts with the most action-packed theme sequence that you could possibly imagine. It starts, let's go! And then it <laughs> follows from the behind the perspective of Peter Rabbit, running around trees and into gardens and stuff, like a computer game. And it is obvious that, you know, the makers in the 2010s were like, this is an iconic character, but it's just really boring for modern-day children. I love the idea of the producers going, this is a bit boring, nothing happens, and a sort of brainstorming committee then having to <laughs> get to work going, Sh- I don't know, should he play the tambourine and the bells or something? <laughs> <laughs> now, this episode first aired last year exclusively to members of Club Retrospectors. Join today and unlock a new episode this Sunday. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors! Ha, 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 ha.